Welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Jan Bock and I'm the Programme Director of Cumberland Lodge. Last week we were joined by Rabbi Charlie Beginski, Julie Siddiqui, Onka Singh and the Reverend Lucy Winker to discuss faith responses to COVID-19. It was fascinating to hear about their experiences with the growth of virtual practices, um, services and observance within the communities and to discuss the challenges and opportunities of the current situation for faith groups in particular. If you missed Dialogue and Debate last week, you can watch it back on our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Today, we are pleased to welcome four new guests to delve deeper into some of the challenges around death and bereavement that were mentioned last week as well. We will be exploring the ways in which government, faith communities, charities, and non-governmental organizations can best support those affected by death whilst bereavement rituals and related social practices are restricted. To help offer their expertise and advice, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Nicholas Long, Associate Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, by Linda Magistris, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of the Good Grief Trust, Julia Samuel, the psychotherapist and author, and Ken and James Woodward, the Principal of Serum College. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us this morning. And to those watching, do please get involved and submit any questions you'd like to put to our guests as we go. We will do our best to answer as many as we can over the course of the seminar. You can submit questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our Facebook live stream. If you prefer to remain anonymous, please direct messages, uh, please direct message us on Facebook or Twitter during the webinar and we will bring these questions into the conversation. I would like to start with you, Nick. Um, would you perhaps begin by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about the research you've been doing at the LSE on the meaning of a good death during the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure, and thank you so much for inviting me, Yeah, It's great to be here. Uh, so my name's Nick Long. I'm an anthropologist at the LSE, and together with a team of colleagues, uh, back in April, we thought it would be very important to do a research project on how people were experiencing the dying process, the mourning process, bereavement, and responding to the restrictions on funerary practices and the kinds of normal forms of social support that people would get to experience following a bereavement. Because uh, as we know, uh, there were sudden uh, legal regulations put through with the coronavirus bill, there were some restrictions on funerary practices, and we wanted to understand how that was affecting communities that we had links with as anthropologists. And we were thinking this is somewhere where uh, our disciplinary background, our research relationships with communities that we've known in some cases for a very, very long time over the course of our careers might be able to shed some insight and, and try and reveal what was working well for people and what was uh, what was proving difficult for people at a time when there was such public consciousness of mortality, such fear of mass excess death. Uh, I mean, this was at the time right when the case numbers were escalating and we were approaching the, the peak of the peak and it could have gone even further. And so we wanted to use anthropological insights to think about how best to support people whilst also staying true to public health imperatives, which is obviously a very difficult balancing act. And um, one of the things we really wanted to understand was in this situation where things have got to be restricted, what matters to people? What kinds of restrictions can people tolerate? And will they view as proportionate and understand and be on board with? And what kind of cuts a little bit too far? What are the red lines when it comes to bereavement and commemoration? So what was very interesting is that as we were working across the UK, we were working with everything, uh, every kind of group from uh, British Muslims in Birmingham to people in Northern Ireland, to people in rural Wales, to people in inner city London, really across the board, there was a primary concern with ideas of honour and dignity. It was crucial to honour the deceased and to deal with their memory and with their body in a respectful way. Uh, and so in that sense, I don't think the COVID-19 pandemic has really changed very much about fundamental concerns that we have in our relations to, to the deceased and our obligations to them. But what it has done is it's made that whole process much more anxious because suddenly restrictions come in place that shatter pre-existing traditions. And that's been very difficult for people. So in many parts of the country, we were finding people were used to big funerals. That was, that was the precedent they had. That was the only reference 
point that they had for what would be a, a good way of commemorating their lost loved one. Uh, maybe the family has always had uh, really large funerals, perhaps the village has always had really large funerals, but now it had to be very restricted, uh, possibly uh, only a maximum of, of 10. In some local authorities, only a maximum of five. There were a couple of local authorities that weren't even allowing any mourners at all. In, maybe you'd have a virtual ceremony. And so that raised a lot of, of doubts for people. If they were having this very small funeral, could they do justice to their loved one. Um, and actually what was, what was reassuring was that in many cases, people did find that these smaller ceremonies actually could work quite well for them. They could be very personal. They could allow them to reflect perhaps more on their emotional relationship with the deceased rather than having to put on a public show to the whole village or the whole community. Uh, although of course, not so great for the people who weren't able to come to the funeral and who got to come and who didn't get to come could itself proved quite divisive. Uh, but that led to a lot of uncertainty, a lot of potential guilt. You know, are we going to be able to do, uh, do our loved one justice? And the other thing that really became very clear as a theme was the anxiety that came from realising that funerals and death were now objects of state restriction, uh, that if the cases escalated, if there were more and more deaths, if it became more and more important to intervene uh, from a public health point of view, or just simply a capacity point of view, that some mortuaries were becoming uh, overloaded, would it then lead to a situation where the funeral that you were planning would be cancelled altogether? And that was very traumatic and stressful for people, particularly because of the way the government was adopting a nationwide approach. Uh, so you might have situations where certain local authorities were finding themselves overwhelmed with, with deaths, but then a nationwide restriction on funerals might lead to another area where it'd be perfectly fine to use the cemetery and do business as usual, being subject to restrictions. So there were real concerns about proportionality and fairness and whether or not a fair way of dealing with death treats people as members of the nation or members of a local area. And I think in general, that's been one of the real challenges with the pandemic. You know, we've seen that the curves and the patterns of the outbreaks are, are very different regionally. Um, so what's fair when a restriction cuts into uh, the most kind of private and personal experiences of, of mourning uh, or of social relationships, emotional relationships. So that's been a really difficult thing for people to, to grapple with. And some of the most moving stories that we heard came from people who were very upset and very angry that they could only have five people at their funeral, for example, even though they knew that the people across the border in another local authority were allowed a slightly larger celebration or the, the rules weren't enforced quite so rigidly. One, one local area, you could go to the cemetery, another, the cemetery gates were closed. Uh, and that really upset people because it, it seemed random and there was a sense that they and the mourning process were really at the whim of state authorities. And I think that maybe is a distinct new way of kind of having a consciousness of the, the politics of, of death and bereavement that might not have been so widespread before. The other really big thing that we, we found though is that although there's been a lot of focus on the number of people at the funeral and the funeral service as this epicenter of attention, in many ways that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, when you're at the funeral, you're going through all this personal stuff, you're not, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily cognizant of who's around you, but then there's a whole process of care and support for the bereaved that would normally take place through in-person interactions. Uh, and now it can't because of social distancing regulations. Uh, so very difficult for people to be able to go over to uh, bereaved loved ones home and just do all the kinds of things that you normally would cook for them, do the cleaning, um, just be, be there be there to listen. You can set up a Zoom conversation or pick up the phone, but it's not quite the same because it requires a lot of effort to maintain a conversation. Sometimes you just want to be together with people quietly. Uh, it, it suits people who are very good at articulating themselves and articulating their emotions, but that doesn't suit everybody. Uh, there might be some cultural backgrounds or generational backgrounds where articulating your feelings over the internet is just not what you're used to. Uh, I know, you know, it's a 
classic stereotype, but a lot of Southeast Asian populations, Vietnamese populations, for example, to speak of your own personal feelings would be seen as a little bit selfish. It's like kind of bourgeois capitalist way of doing things, not what the Vietnamese socialist state encouraged you to do. So you express your care by cooking for people, doing things for them through actions. But you now can't do those actions because the actions require you to be co-present. So one of the things that I'm hoping is that as we start to relax lockdown restrictions and let's talk of allowing friends and family to mix or uh, creating social bubbles and so forth, hopefully experiences of people who've been very isolated and traumatised because of bereavement will be considered as a priority as people who might most need to have some kind of uh, social contact because that was something that was coming through very, very clearly. Uh, but the other thing that, that came through, and maybe this is the point that I'll, I'll end on before opening up the discussion more broadly, is just how differentiated experiences of this pandemic are, including in the realms of death and bereavement, uh, that what it means to be bereaved in a pandemic depends so much on your broader history and your positionality in UK society. So if you are, for example, uh, from a cultural group that has a history of traumatic death, whether that be the mass burials of slavery, uh, whether that be the Holocaust, the ideas of these kinds of state regulations mandating what could be done, is really terrifying and unsettling in a way that it's maybe not for somebody who's a white middle-class individual whether the prospect of the death itself is terrifying, but uh, there's not that sense that you might be treated differently. Uh, And this, of course, was a particular issue for Jewish and Muslim communities around the time of the coronavirus bill, where it seemed that the state uh, had the power to mandate cremation uh, if it if it really needed to on the basis of its own public health calculation, even though people were saying, oh, we're not planning to use that power. Uh, We really don't think it's necessary, but they did still give themselves the power. So if push came to shove, they could mandate the cremation of somebody who um, whose religion would forbid it. And that became very, very difficult because once that ground had been ceded, even when there was rowback and there was an amendment to the bill, there was still a lot of paranoia and fear amongst many of our Muslim interlocutors that ultimately they or their loved ones would be cremated and it led to catastrophizing you know it's a very stressful time anxiety is running high anyway because it's a global pandemic because life as we know it has been shut down this just adds another difficult element and heightens feelings of cultural exclusion and even when uh, the government put in this amendment and said well if you're from a faith group that that forbids cremation, then we won't cremate you. Even that was was a problem for many of our Muslim interlocutors because they were saying, well, it's not as if we want people who are not Muslim to be cremated if they don't want to be. The whole point of a, a just society in Islam is it's one that respects the dignity of the human body. And if individual wishes are to be cremated, then that's fine. But if not, you shouldn't presume that direct cremation is fine. So these state logics of how it's permissible to treat the dead uh, really kind of, I think for some people, highlighted a sense that the rationale of British society, or perhaps more accurately, the British state was not their own rationale. And these core values of what was important in terms of dealing with the dead was, was not shared. And so it really is a moment, I think, feeds into broader feelings of alienation and cultural exclusion and managing that and trying to create a a sympathetic and compassionate dialogue between different traditions of thinking about death rather than just viewing it as a practical problem of how to make sure that cemeteries don't um, or crematoria don't overflow and that mortuaries are able to manage capacity. Um, it's, It's a really tricky balancing act and one that as all this legislation was rushed through, maybe was not handled quite as well as it as it could have been. But I think now the numbers are coming down and the government's had a bit more time to reflect on these things. I think I think progress is being made. Thanks, Nick. Really interesting overview of the project. And uh, I believe there's a report, if people are interested in knowing more about the project you've been working on, and that's available on the LSE website. Yes, and there is a link to it on the Cumberland Lodge uh, page that advertises this event. 
Brilliant. I wonder, Linda, you've been working with your charity, the Good Grief Trust, for some years on some of the topics that Nick mentioned. Could you tell us a bit more about the trust and, and maybe reflect on to the extent on the extent to which what Nick has just said resonates with your experience and the conversations that you've been having over the past weeks, especially? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's incredibly important that we all come together and we collaborate and we work together on this. Um, so that we can draw from each other's experiences. So, yes, I, I founded the Good Grief Trust in 2016. In 2014, I lost my partner, Graham, to cancer um, and wasn't signposted. The GPs and the health professionals literally did not have any resource available to them to give me a choice. I was given a leaflet for counselling. It didn't work for me. Um, and then I went out and I found the most perfect charity. Um, but sadly, nobody seemed to know about it. And that was my light bulb moment. So we now have over 730 support services on our database, it's growing every day. So whether you've lost a child, partner, sibling, friend, colleague, you can find a choice of support. And that's what we found um, by speaking to, to thousands of bereaved over these years. It's the choice, not one will you know, fix everybody. Um, so what we've done, we have these support services, we have helplines, we have updates, they're all on the database, but we also have something called the Good Grief Card. So this is basically the resource that we have. There's no point in having a brilliant website if you can't actually physically get the bereaved to it. So this particular resource here, there's a little plastic credit card. The bereaved take this off and you get the URL to the website. And this is supplied now to health professionals. It's supplied to acute trust, GPs, community, police, etc. Um, so this is what we're finding is the key problem at the moment with the, with the COVID crisis. There is so much disparity across the country. Obviously, the acute trusts have been desperately trying to keep people alive. So those bereavement teams have been um, disbanded. Some of those um, nurses are working from home. Um, some of them are not even working at all. They're literally on the front line. So we're finding that this support is not getting to the bereaved. Um, many of them are at home, clearly isolated and grieving at home, which is causing incredible distress. As you said, Nick, the lack of um, access to funerals, the limited numbers that we have to now adhere by is really, really traumatic for, for many, many people. To say goodbye on Zoom or by phone when people are in hospital is completely alien to everybody. And it's leaving a lasting, sad, um, catastrophic um, feeling with, with many, many people who are bereaved. Um, so what we're doing at the moment, we're trying to centralise early signposting to immediate support. We're working with government and we absolutely know that there are, as we know, 37,000 people who have died through COVID related deaths. But every day, 1,600 people die on average. So across the time that we've been in lockdown, roughly about 140,000 people have died and they are all being affected by the restrictions and the limitations and this chaos that has been happening over the past few months. So what our key focus at the moment is to centralize early support. So what we're, we're lobbying for is that the Good Grief card gets into the hands of every single person who's bereaved because sadly at home, they are struggling. We are working with acute trusts who are phoning the bereaved. They have sadly hundreds of people in each of these hospitals. Um, who have died. So they're phoning direct to those families. They're having 40 or 50 minute conversations with a family. First of all, to find out how they are. Are they getting any shopping? Do they have any contact with family and friends? But clearly, physically, they can't. And to just do it via Zoom or by phone or by social distancing is so damaging at the moment. So what we're trying to do is get everyone together. We have now a coronavirus bereavement advice page, a centralized page where we have all these charities and support services, helplines and government updates. We have incredible support being adapted across the country. So those face-to-face -face support groups are now being adapted as we know online. We ourselves run three virtual Good Grief cafes now every week. We have um, one on a Wednesday today, lunchtime, Sunday lunchtime, and now we have a specific one on a Friday lunchtime for the COVID families. We're finding they just want, as they always have done, is to connect with others, and particularly with others who have been through a similar bereavement. So those who have lost a husband, a wife, are coming together and, and grieving together online. It's so alien, clearly. 
Um, the second point, because what we're basically doing is a two-pronged approach. We want the card to land on the mat of those people who are bereaved. Um, at the moment, Acute Trust is sending out personal possessions via courier. So we're asking for them to potentially go via the courier with their personal possessions. Again, it's quite sporadic. There's a lot of disparity across trusts. Um, and again, via the police and the community as well, because again, they are working independently. We want to bring people together. And the second thing we're asking for is a text, because now there is a brilliant NHS helpline. We have 90 nurses. It's set up by NHS Blood and Transplant. It's working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Obviously, there are other um, helplines which are brilliant, but this one has trained nurses from the NHS sitting there waiting for calls. It is not being advertised, it is not being publicized, when we have the press briefings every day from Parliament, no one is mentioning bereavement support. They mention mental health, they mention domestic abuse, they mention the numbers and the statistics, but nobody as yet has said this is a telephone number for the bereaved to phone and they can get immediate support and signposting now. That is shocking. It's unacceptable and it's so simple to do. So this is what we're lobbying um, Parliament to do, is to literally put out a telephone number on text, first of all, to all those COVID families. And potentially, if we can get the text out nationally, then everybody will know there is a phone line. Not everyone can do this. Not everyone can go on Zoom or has a device or, have, or has um, access to the internet or to Wi-Fi. But they do have a telephone. They can phone. They can have a compassionate conversation. They don't need a counsellor from day one. Sadly, a lot of people are being signposted to, to Samaritans. And as I'm sure Julia will, will, um, will agree, not everybody who is grieving needs crisis support. They just need to talk. They just need a kind listening ear and then to be signposted to wherever is suitable for them. So that's what we're trying to um, achieve at the moment. Great, thank you, and thank you for raising awareness for, for some of the support that is available. Um, just a quick reminder to everybody watching at home that we'd love you to submit questions in the course of the webinar, and you can do so by using the Q&A function on our Zoom live stream or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or commenting on our live stream on Facebook. If you prefer to remain anonymous, please direct message us on Facebook or Twitter during the webinar. Um, Julia. Linda just mentioned mentioned your work and uh, and your book Grief Works. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about the book and share some of the practical advice to those grieving or those seeking to comfort others through uh, through bereavement at the moment, um, particularly whilst isolated? So my book um, Grief Works is stories of individuals' experience of grief and death. And it's through the relationship with the person that's died. And then there's lots of reflections and research about what influences your outcome from death and bereavement. And linking to what Nick and Linda were saying is basically when anyone is bereaved, the influences will be their personality type, what they're kind of born with, the history they've had. As Nick talks about, it could be a transgenerational history, but also your own history of losses and your family history of how they deal with death. Um, the circumstances of the death, which is the thing that is, is, is particularly complex now. And the predictor of outcomes for people who are bereaved is the love and connection to others at the time of the death and after the death. So those two key things, the circumstances and the love and connection to others and the funeral and the ritual around the funeral are all very off kilter and will have dramatic effect on people's capacity to sort of grieve untrammeled. I mean, the, the two, two of the many tasks of mourning is to face the reality of the death because by over time, incrementally facing the reality, you adjust to this new normal that you didn't want and you didn't choose. But it is by feeling the pain of that, by having the memory of it, is how you accommodate the death and uh, grieve the loss, feel the pain of the loss, and then reinvest in this new life that you have. And for many people who um, witness a death of uh, an iPad or some screen or have no, um, aren't present at all, um, it will be a much more traumatic death. So what you don't see, you make up. And what you make up is much more frightening than the truth. But also, if you see it from a screen, one of the most difficult aspects of death for everybody is having no control, which both Nick and Linda have talked about. 
having no control that you can't hold the hand of the hand of the person that you love that you can't kind of say whisper to them or be with them and you're seeing somebody you don't know you've never met in PPE holding their hand is it adds to your feeling of powerless but also you feel like some one of the most difficult aspects of grief is guilt somehow you, although it's not logical people will feel that they failed that I wasn't the the wife, I wasn't the daughter, I wasn't the child that I should have been to the person that's dying because I wasn't with them. And that is the kind of opposite of a, a good death. And then, you know, as, and I know Canon James will talk about this too, you know, in every religion in millennia since time began, the, the rituals of the funeral are key to people's um, capacity to both acknowledge and face the reality of the death but also feel it witnessed and the connection to other people. And the ritual gives you a frame and a format that you, that you understand and gives you a sense of agency and control when grief is, feels like it's a tsunami that you have no control and you don't understand and you feel like you've been thrown onto this alien planet. In the COVID era, you have been thrown onto a kind of alien planet where you can't do the normal practices of a funeral of having people around you. And also, a lot of people don't feel they're legitimate to grieve. And then if they're not legitimized by going to the funeral, that adds to their sense of illegitimacy. So it, from my perspective, all of, all of those aspects means it's much more likely people will have suspended grief or traumatic grief. And for both of those, um, you know, people talk about traumatic grief as grief with the volume turned up. So that's all the normal experiences of grief, of pain, of fury, of, of sadness, of powerlessness, all of those different feelings, but intensified. So uh, uh, my kind of sense is that more and more people will need support that Linda's talking about, that all the different organizations can provide and I definitely think you know online is better than nothing it isn't the same as being with someone it isn't the same as being physically sitting beside someone but it is infinitely better than nothing at all so when Nick talks about the communities that don't have access to online support who's who's used to doing it by people coming and sitting shiver or or coming and bringing food or through actions I think they're a, a vulnerable community we should be thinking very carefully about of how we can meet their needs given that they don't have access to any of the online support that there is available. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. And I, I think I'd like to take up your suggestion and ask, ask Ken and James to say a bit more about rituals and the importance of rituals and ceremonies in this process and how, how you have experienced virtual replacements or virtual bereavement ceremonies. Um, Thank you, Jan, and very good to be here and reconnect with Windsor. Um, there are a couple of words that come to my mind which link with the previous speakers about, uh, I suppose, a limited practice. I'm talking uh, as an Anglican priest who uh, at Serum College, we uh, shape and form women and men for authorised ministry in the church. We have 70 odd students. I've been in very close contact with them, stretched right across the region. We uh, are based in Salisbury, uh, right across the southern region. So I've built up quite a picture of communities and faith communities uh, adapting uh, and responding. And there are a couple of words that um, I'm picking up from uh, Linda, Julia and uh, Nick, with just to reinforce um, the extraordinary and wonderful uh, work that has taken place uh, during this pandemic. Um, the first thing is that I think that uh, people in communities have uh, reconnected with neighbours. Uh, they've um, rejuvenated a sense of uh, 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 friendships and uh, responding to a variety of needs. People quite simply have been available to one another uh, in a way that perhaps uh, the busyness and activity of our lives have not allowed it before. So um, I think there's been a quality of availability and those informal um, conversations and connections which have been generative and life-giving and help people uh, to, uh, to flourish. Um, the agenda is enormous. Uh, 
the the tsunami of loss and lament and pain and the tearfulness of the many cumulative stories of death uh, in COVID-19 uh, need to be captured and we need to hang on to them and allow people to continue to tell their stories, uh, to share how um, painful uh, and liberating and tear uh, producing this has all been. So I think, uh, uh, sorry, I, 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 the, there's been a, a pastoral and individual presence and an availability uh, in, in all of that. Um, I think the other, the other word which um, I'm picking up from, from, from Linda, uh, also in the nuance of uh, Julia's uh, powerful work around uh, grief, if, I, I think if there is a spiritual and human emotion uh, that we are so uh, challenged by, it is grief. There is so much unresolved grief in and around uh, ourselves and our communities. Um, I would want to say that, that that faith communities have been incredibly adaptive to situations. Um, uh, clergy, uh, lay people uh, have continued to take funerals. They've continued, as Nick pointed out, as demonstrated in his research, uh, to be responsive to individuals and to be adaptive to keeping people safe. Uh, within uh, within the restrictions, so um, availability and, and adaptivity is is important. Let me just very briefly uh, re remind you what you already know, but that, that I do think that there are two philosophical, theological. Uh, I'm bound to say that, aren't I? I suppose uh, questions and issues which are which 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 are important. The first thing is. We can't die a good death if we haven't lived a good life. Uh, sorry to be a bit preachy. And we can't live a good life if we haven't at some point um, confronted our need for significance and our deep search for meaning. Who am I? Where am I going? What do I want to live for? What difference do I want to make? Uh, these are fundamental spiritual questions which join us together as human beings. And... Um, uh, one of the odd uh, upsides of this ghastly pandemic uh, is that I'm having more conversations about life's meaning, its texture, its colour, its complexity uh, than I ever have, um, uh, broadly what I'd call spiritual uh, questions. So death and how we do death and live death, excuse the pun, is related to uh, what kind of life we live and uh, what choices we make in our life and what uh, significance and meaning uh, are attached to it. And so I think those questions uh, feed into the importance of ritual. Uh, and this is where I think um, I'm not, I'd like to check this out with Nick, but where I'm finding some synergy and connectivity with both Linda uh, and Julia I think the consequences of uh, COVID-19 on its, on, on, on its effect of, of the disruption of grief, I think that was Julia's phrase, uh, we will live with for some time. Uh, the unresolvedness of the things we wanted that we couldn't have, that we've lost uh, in the ritual is really, really important. And um, I, I I hope and pray that we can resource uh, the generative work of Julia and Linda and others uh, to look at that. And I, I think I wouldn't want to want to underestimate in terms of the availability and adaptability of people responding to others, that we have lost so much through the ritual of a funeral. And let me just give you five elements and I'll finish what, what I think a funeral is all about. First of all, we need to get together uh, however long, however short, however scurrously wonderful the life has been, uh, I hope they'll say that of me, we need to get together and to say thank you, to say thank you for who the person was, what they shared, what they gave. Uh, and ritual helps us to do that. I think the second element is that in and 
through all of this, and this is an interesting question for COVID-19, how does ritual help us find hope in life? And this is related to questions of meaning and significance, which I referred to uh, earlier. Uh, thirdly, uh, the physicality of the funeral is so important. Some of the rituals around funerals prior to COVID-19, there are a lot of people who want to protect themselves against the sheer box physicality of the body laid there in front of you as you ritualize and celebrate the life. Uh, we have uh, got to, uh, it helps to face the reality um, of of what's going on. And within that, and, and I, I'm putting this very, very broadly, there has to be a handing back uh, of who the person was, what they meant, and their physical remains uh, to uh, be laid to rest and to be dis deposed, disposed properly. Um, and so within that handing back, the ritualization of handing back, um, and within the laying the body to rest in whatever way that means, I, I think there can be uh, in the process of grief uh, an emotional intelligence that grief nurtures in us, uh, a, a, a farewell. Um, so that, so we need ritual, we need to work hard at ritual and they're absolutely fundamental. But just one footnote, Julia, I promise I'm nearly finished. My, my mother died um, about 20 months ago after a long struggle with dementia. Um, and I, I've, I've, in the process of grieving um, that, that anybody goes through, there is a difference, of course, because I've written a little bit about this area. So it's very different uh, to know in your head what grief means when it happens in your heart and in your life. It's a whole different uh, ecology and economy. But when I think uh, about that process and it takes me, it brings me up sharp sometimes in terms of uh, missing her and um, feeling uh, about the situation, I am enormously comforted by that day when we said farewell to mum and all of the things that surrounded that, the, the packed church, the letters, the flowers, the hugs, uh, the, the wake to end all wakes um, uh, afterwards when we gathered and those little conversations that uh, you would never have, uh, have expected to have uh, from people who said, I just sit down here now and shut up because I want to tell you what your mam was really like and how much I loved her. All of those, those two are part of the ritual, which um, uh, although I, I can see the strength of Nick's research, uh, uh, people have coped very well. It's those things that matter that, that, that we'll need to try uh, to, to, to stay with and work through as time goes on. Uh, thank you for bearing with me. Thank you very much. Really, really important point. And I think, Julia, you wanted to, to respond to something James just said. I mean, there were, well, the, latest, the last thing you said, of course, is, is vital, isn't it? That it's our love and connection to others that's, that predicts our outcome at the time and after the death. And that is the acknowledgement and the witnessing of the value of the person that has died. And the level of your loss is equal to the level of your love. So if you're surrounded by hundreds of people who really loved your mum and acknowledging it to you and saying it to you, that gives you lots of foundations and memories and resources that you can call on in the weeks and months following her death. And that has a huge influence on your capacity to grieve untrammeled. Mm. But what I think the complexity with COVID A is that you don't have that lovely richness of lots of people, you have five or 10, and you may even just have it on Zoom. So you don't get that time aside with a cup of tea and a biscuit and someone talking to you and telling you a memory you had no idea of. But I, the sort of tasks of mourning are to face the reality of the loss, to grieve and feel the pain, but also that the relationship continues, that the love for the person never dies, as you very movingly have said. And so finding ways of touchstones to memory to keep that love going are incredibly important. And I think that's one of the ways that we can think about for the future 
in remembrance, like the St. Paul's Remembrance, where you can come together um, to remember and, and uh, pay tribute to the person that died in your own individual way. And I think there will be lots of services if with, it, with social distancing, once the kind of intensity of the lockdown is decreased and you can have numbers together where people will ga have gatherings to remember. But I also I think there will be, I hope, a national mourning um, for people. I'm just going to say one more thing. I work quite a lot at Grenfell. Yeah. And one of the complexities of being a member of a group when someone has died is that you get labelled as a Grenfell um, survive, uh, someone who's, who was bereaved in Grenfell. And when you're all together, there can be a kind of, re, uh, because everyone is transmitting how distressed they are and how much pain they're in, that actually increases your distress individually because you pick up on everybody else's. Yeah. It can also be a kind of competitive mourning. I don't mean this nastily or in any way critically, but that, you know, I had my only child die, you had four children, you know what I mean? There's, so you compare and also then you get lumped into a group that you're a Grenfell bereaved person rather than Julia whose daughter died. Mm -hmm. And that can be very um, objectifying and, diminishing and so it isn't easy being a you know being a bereaved person by covid when there's 37,000 is it 37,000 yeah yeah it is of them mm. um as well and i think that needs to be thought about sensitively because they're individuals as well as a stat as well as a number yeah yeah can i say something as well because i mean i completely agree with julia and, and karen james as well because the disruption of the grief and the anger and the regret and the guilt of not doing what you really had planned to do. Um, you know, you're not even allowed to dress the body the way that you think that your, your mom or your dad or your child, you know, should be dressed. You know, that sort of um, distraction from, from being present with them is just incredibly damaging. And we're finding the bereaved are coming to us. I mean, our Facebook group has gone crazy. I mean, it's always been very busy. You've got 20,000 people interacting, commenting, helping each other. Um, but the, the thread that's going through is just, it's, it's the guilt and the regret that they're going to be left with, that they haven't achieved what they really could have achieved. And, you know, people have put in funeral plans for years and that hasn't been put into place. Um, you know, it's just incredibly, incredibly upsetting. Um, and it's also bringing up old grief as well, obviously, because, I mean, last week I was on LBC a couple of nights running and you had people who um, they'd lost a child through suicide last year and they're absolutely distraught this year. Someone had lost their husband through, um, uh, through a heart attack. Again, it brought up all those old, incredibly um, uh, difficult feelings because it's not only obviously the people who have died through the COVID related deaths, it's all those others. It's the miscarriages, it's the cancers, it's, it's the road traffic accidents, although thankfully we haven't had many people on the roads, but it's just all those other deaths as well that are all lumped into this restriction and limitation um, that we are really, really gonna have to, to, to address. Yeah, just to, to pick up on that, I mean, I think not only is there a, a, a question of how people process the death, but it's also presenting many invidious dilemmas for people as their loved ones are dying. So one of the things that we found in our research was that people were uh, withholding their loved ones from hospital admission mm -hmm. so that they could have their loved ones around them when they passed uh, and you know, they'd made the calculus that perhaps it, it, was a, it was a done deal, this person couldn't be saved, but I mean, yeah, this is really kind of gambling with life and death. You're having to make that, if we're thinking about guilt and legitimacy, did I act in the right way? You know, is that a decision that you will come to regret? Will you be haunted by the thought, well, maybe actually if I had put my mum into hospital, she could have got some treatment and survived. Um, but similarly, if you do admit her to hospital and then you can't be with her, uh, then there's the question, well, did you actually let her down? Mm -hmm. And I think it, it gets further complicated by the fact that NHS trusts and individual wards have discretion over visitor policies. Um, there is this social distancing uh, message that is saying, well, stay at home regardless. But then as we know from recent events with a certain Mr. Cummings, there are some degrees of possibility to have exceptions in extraordinary circumstances, but it's really presenting people with a big dilemma. Like if they go in to visit their loved one 
in the ward, are they being selfish or not? Are they putting other people at risk? Are they putting themselves at risk? If they decide to quarantine for two weeks so that they can then hold awake with their loved ones when they're not supposed to, are they letting the country down or are they supporting their family? If they're making that sacrifice and they see other people are coming up with more creative um, ways of doing things, it can just really lead to a sense of injustice and the anger that can come from this is obviously an emotion that is linked to bereavement anyway can then become very consuming, especially when there's a sense that some of these deaths might be needless. If we'd locked down earlier, uh, then maybe the death wouldn't have taken place at all or the, the distancing restrictions could have been relaxed. So there's a lot of very complicated kind of political grief as well as personal grief that I think needs to be worked through in this COVID context, which is... So if, I, if I could add to that, um, Nick, that's very helpful. I, I do think that, um, and it, it relates to this, uh, this, this issue, which we all know about uh, in terms of uh, life stages, in terms of the interrelationship between life and death, loss and change, uh, and how we live. But there are deep, deep political and social and economic uh, challenges uh, to uh, what it means to live in a society uh, and what it means to live for the value of justice. And um, uh, it cannot be an accident that the highest affected group uh, 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 of COVID um, uh, individuals, uh, I don't know the phraseology, right, uh, are, are, are BAME uh, from the black and ethnic minorities group. And if I could just also get angry for two seconds, because it'll help me, I'll pay you. Um, I'm appalled at uh, what this has revealed about our attitudes to and our resourcing uh, of care for older people. I mean, we should be ashamed of ourselves in terms of uh, what we've allowed uh, to happen uh, in terms of economics and organisation uh, with older people. Um, it's not a good reflection uh, of uh, a community that wants us all to flourish. Mm. I would like to pick up on the point you just made, James, on, on BAME communities, because we have a question from Caroline, who says, in what ways might the disproportionate deaths among the BAME communities and the reporting which surrounds this affect BAME relationships with the state and the legacy of mourning? I wonder whether, whether Nick, you might have something to say to that? Absolutely. I mean, it varies quite a lot, I would say, from from BAME group to BAME group. So how it's experienced by Afro-Caribbeans is not gonna be the same as how it's explained, uh, ex uh, experienced by South Asian Muslims, for example. Uh, but certainly I think it, what it really draws attention to is the fact that uh, these are groups that are disproportionately in harm's way. Uh, I mean, it's really heightening the fact that they also have structural vulnerabilities, um, but they're often providing work in the, they're the key workers who are going in and being more exposed to, to the virus. And so I think certainly amongst the BAME respondents that we worked with, it really kind of acutely heightened a sense of their vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis the, the white majority and a sense of unfairness and a sense that they were kind of like the, the collateral that was just sort of sent out to, to put themselves in harm's way, sent out to die. Um, basically. And, and yet, the government messaging was not well targeted at their specific needs. So there wasn't a lot of literature made available in Bengali or in Urdu or to support older people from those communities. There is some literature available, very simple points and local council websites if you dig through to, to look at it. But in terms of the letter that Boris Johnson sent out to everybody, I mean, that was in English, it presumes certain kinds of uh, fluency. It's not thinking about the particular community needs that people might have in terms of being able to go to the mosque and how that affects them. So there's this double standard where on the one hand, the imagined person that is staying at home is a kind of white middle class nuclear family individual. And yet the person who is most at risk of COVID and COVID complications is somebody who is not of that background and might live in a slightly different kind of household setup. So it's always a very complicated issue because obviously the legislation was put through very rapidly. And so it's understandable, although not necessarily forgivable, that there are some of these oversights. But uh, I mean, now we're a, a lot further down the line and I wonder how much the specific needs of, of BAME communities have really been, really been <clears> dealt with. 
Linda. If I can, yeah, come back. Absolutely. This is why we're so passionate that it's so important to have um, multi-faceted um, support so that we have a website, obviously, that can bring everything together. You know, we can bring all those support services, helplines and everything together. But we also have to recognise, as you said, Nick, there are many, many thousands of people who are affected by these deaths who potentially have language um, issues, they have cultural issues and barriers and challenges. So to have a helpline, this is why we've said you have to have somebody on this particular NHS helpline, there are interpreters. There are people who can help those people no matter what language comes in. We can't assume that they would have access to the internet, to Wi-Fi, to a device. You know, we have to say that if they have a telephone, they can be supported. We have to reach out into those other communities, as you say, um, not everyone should be expected just to have the normal support system around them and network of friends. They are being left, they are being isolated even more, that community. And the LGBTQ community as well that we're working with. You know, again, there's all those issues about funerals and, and you know, how what sort of gender they wanted to be remembered in and, and, and clothing. And it's just very, very complicated. And it, we do need to address those as well, definitely. Yeah, and one particularly vulnerable category, who may be BAME, they, they may not be, but it's recently arrived migrants because they're at the point in their life in their new country where they would be building social networks and reaching out and getting to know new people. But actually, the lockdown has frozen that. So now there's an intense privatisation of all of the stresses of the lockdown, including and beyond bereavement. Uh, and yet the figure of the newly arrived migrant, I don't feel has really featured prominently in terms of public messaging or support strategies. Uh, it's a kind of group that falls off the map. They're, they're out there and they're isolated, but they're not, they're not seen. And even if there are moves to allow people to connect with isolated people, they might not have the social networks that allow them to be recognised as people that require support. So we do need to think quite creatively about who is, who is vulnerable and how they can be reached. Yeah, exactly. James, you wanted to, to respond as well. You need to unmute yourself first, James. Yeah, I, that's a, it's a new language, isn't it? You know, uh, let us mute, let us unmute. Um, I wanted to ask uh, my fellow um, contributors, if we believe that ritual is um, a, a social bit of agency for good, that it has um, a, a politic and a uh, life-giving quality. And I don't take my collar off and put it broadly, that ritual um, is important. What do you think we should do together to recover ritual, uh, create new rituals, or find a way in which ritualization of the loss and the change and the pain and the grief and the death caused by COVID-19, and I put that in the broadest perspective in, in terms of isolation, in terms of the way we live, what might we do to have a renewal of ritual across boundaries, borders, religious ideologies, gender, geography, whatever? Great question. It was my final question, but uh, you, you've asked it already. Sorry. <laughs> so maybe, Julia, would you like to respond in the first place? Well, I think before we kind of think what it might be, I think we want to gather and collaborate with all of the communities, particularly the ones that have been excluded, as well as the majority, to ask them what they would want so that it doesn't come from some kind of strategic politic, you know, some plan from outside, but that it's very personal and expressed through the questioning of lots of people. Um, and I, I mean, I think there would, should unquestionably be some kind of Remembrance Day, like you have a Remembrance Day on uh, in November. Yeah. Um, and that it should represent, you know, the, the, the whole nation. But mm. after a lot of discussion of what people want it to look like and feel like and be like, and mm. so it's, it's very inclusive. Mm. Um, and I think I think that's the only thing that we can do, as well as people's individual memorials. Mm. Can I add one tiny thing that's I keep on thinking and I, I haven't said, 
and it's more of a positive one than a negative one, is, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I have wanted people to discuss death and mortality and the meaning of their life yeah. forever. <laughs> and I have never really succeeded mm. in getting them to do it because, mm. you know, the biggest kind of um, difficulty when people are grieving is the regrets of the questions they haven't asked, the information they don't know, what they wish they had done or said, or all of that knowledge, including passwords, I may say. <laughs> and the only bonus from COVID is I think throughout the nation, everyone is doesn't have the magical thinking that if I think about death, it's going to make it happen. They kind of recognise that they are mortal and that they are going to die. And I think it means that round the kitchen table, many more people within their families and with children, which is really important, have had those conversations, which I think really protects them and builds their resilience for when they do die. I think that's really important. Can I just come in as well? And you're talking about a collective memorial or a collective remembrance as a nation. And as you know, we launched the National Grief Awareness Week last Christmas, which is a big national campaign to bring together everyone to realise the impact of grief. And as you said, Julia, this year, more than any, that week, which is actually going to be between the 2nd and the 8th of December, we'd love you all to get involved in that because that is the time we find, again, at Christmas, it's going to be incredibly painful, incredibly important that we all come together and we find the best way of, of celebrating people's lives and helping those people now. And as we know ongoing, because the follow-up for every single family that has been bereaved has to be ongoing, um, you know, through the months, through the years ahead. Um, and as you said, Julia, we've got on our website, um, you say it isn't the circumstances of the death that will predict a positive or negative outcome. It is, it is the support they get at the time and after the death this is the key component to anybody finding a way to rebuild their life. And we flag that up, Julia. And, and you know, I, I, Julia's work is incredible. And, and that, to me, just encompasses everything that we have to do. We have to reach out. We have to find every single person, wherever they are, and offer them the type of support now and ongoing um, and to celebrate those, those people who, sadly, we've lost before their time. I so I agree with that just very briefly, and it relates to Nick's work um, uh, and, and Julia, your wonderful writing, if I may say. Um, I think we need to find a way of listening and capturing and expressing people's stories. Mm. There are some extraordinary things that have happened uh, in all of this uh, darkness and pain, um, bravery, connect connectivity, life flourishing. Um, what would a national storytelling harvest look like yeah. uh, in terms of how they're shared and how we attend to them? Um, it could be extraordinarily transformative. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the example that immediately springs to my mind here is the kind of community reconciliation events that have taken place in Cambodia as people have tried to process the death that took place under the Khmer Rouge. Very complicated deaths for all sorts of reasons. Um, but precisely because every story is so individual, just having a national level ceremony or memorial service, although that would provide some kind of support, it could be quite homogenizing. So also having a space where there can be dialogue, dramatization of the individual stories, sharing in a space that is then closed off by some kind of ritual moment that puts an end to that storytelling and sharing and contains the dialogue, I think could be could be really powerful. So we need to be we need to be thinking about how to be innovative with what we might call ritual because the the standard model of a familiar ritual that can work to contain small variations in experience might not work so well in such an unprecedented situation. I agree with that. Julia, you wanted to, to come back. Yeah. I was just going to say the thing, I love the idea of stories, obviously, because I've written about stories, but I think the power of stories is that whatever your background and your story, the most personal is always the most universal. So that when people talk most personally about their experience and what happened to them, the good, the kind, the compassionate, the, the infuriating, the terrible, other people from completely different backgrounds, different circumstances see themselves in it. And so that is enormously connecting and um, 
kind of heart reaching I think stories more than anything else does that because we are as human beings narrative we we tell stories and listen to stories and that's how we know ourselves and that's how we connect to others. I think, I think it's been a brilliant discussion and uh, I've certainly learned a lot and unfortunately we're already coming to the end of our webinar but I'd like you all to, to reflect briefly on something that connects to storytelling and stories and that is the role of the media in all of this because a lot of the rituals that are taking place are currently mediated online um, through social media, traditional media and so on and, and do you have a piece of advice for journalists, for reporters on, on what they might do better or how they might produce stories that are supportive of, of mourning efforts, of bereavement. If, if each of you could, could give a quick two-minute response, I think that would be very useful, some, some practical advice to people in the media and journalists. Julia, um, are, you, are you happy to start? My, my particular um, dislike at the moment is, is the extreme. So they use war and battle and fight uh, as if it, it, it which is very dehumanizing. And then there are heroes and heroines, which is also dehumanizing because most people, even if they're key line workers, don't feel like they're heroes. So all of it becomes a kind of dramatic front page, objectifying uh, fake. And I think what people need is authenticity and um, truth is too kind of cumbersome a word, but the authentic, authentic, story of an individual um, that tells that tells the good and the bad I think they they either make it all bad or all good and um, I think people just don't recognize themselves or their lives or their stories or their experience in that thank you James are you happy to go next and offer some reflections uh, less less controlling narrative and discourse more texture through image and colour of people's lives. Brilliant. Nick, what, what, what have you found? Or what would your reflections be on, on the role of the media in this and how the stories that we're telling each other might, might support people in the process of, of mourning? Well, I think it's very important to not be voyeuristic in the way that we present other people's grief to be consumed. I've seen some stories where it's a, a demonstration of the suffering of the person who wasn't able to see their loved one, and that's billed as a human interest story, but I'm not sure. I mean, it calls attention to the suffering, but I'm not sure that it um, does very much more than that and can potentially just make other people catastrophize about similar things happening to them. So I think something that allows us to see the, the nuances and the complexities and to see hope within a difficult situation would be good. But I also think it's very important to call attention to the diversity of experiences. There is something very universal about bereavement, but people are coming to this from very different personal and, and cultural backgrounds, as we've said throughout the webinar. And I think calling attention to that and really helping people understand that this pandemic is not being experienced by everybody in anything like the same way because of who we are and what we come to it with. Uh, even though it's in some sense global, in another sense it's highly individualized. And we're not in a space where it's easy to have these kinds of dialogues with people we don't already know because we're locked down. So the media becomes a really crucial vector for forging compassion and empathy and understanding. And it's probably the principal means by which that can be, be put through. And this isn't about some kind of just tick box diversity. It's about trying to genuinely share different experiences and help people understand where others in, in the UK and the world are coming from. And that I think is gonna be really essential anyway to moving on from the lockdown and the divisions that have been associated with it and coming back together once, once COVID is under control. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Linda, some, some final reflections from you. Yeah, so I think the main word, um, Nick used it, is hope. Um, I think we have to offer hope to people. It can't all be doom and gloom and negativity about how terrible everything is. Obviously, it's the most catastrophic thing that's happened globally. But we have to acknowledge and recognise each individual's grief, person's grief. And I think if the media can offer, again, signposting to support, they can offer um, a, a way forward with somebody's life. And they can give time to that individual to tell their story and, and the diversity as well. We do have to concentrate on all the different cultural um, elements and, and um, religions, et cetera, with this. 
And I think that's that's what they really do need to do. I think they just need to offer a way forward out of this um, nightmare, really, for a lot of people, um, because there is hope, obviously. Um, but I think it really needs to be flagged up constantly. Good. Thank you, Linda. And um, I'm afraid we, we're coming to the end of this webinar. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm sorry we could not answer all the questions that were submitted to us. Um, we try to be better in the future. You can find more. You can find out more about our work at uh, Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And we do hope that you will join us for the webinar next week on Wednesday, 3rd of June at 11am on polarisation and the pandemic. We will be discussing the extent to which COVID-19 unites people across political divides and how we can find opportunities in the crisis for reducing political division and developing shared projects. You can sign up now on our website and do spread the word if you think someone else you know, might be interested in watching our dialogue and debate series. To all of our guests, thank you very much again, um, Julia, James, Linda and Nick, and thank you all for watching us today. If any of the issues that have affected you throughout the course of this webinar, we, we do encourage you to seek further support, for example, by contacting the Good Grief Trust, who will be able to help you or point you in the right direction. So stay safe and all good wishes from Cumberland Lodge. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone.